morning. It's a joy to bring you God's Word this morning. If you haven't done so already, please turn to Genesis eleven twenty-seven, and we are going to zero in all the way to verse 9 of chapter 12. Genesis eleven twenty-seven through Genesis 12, verse 9. One of the most well-known children's songs, and if you have ever spent time in the church growing up, you probably know this song very well. Uh, And that song is Father Abraham Had Many Sons. Perhaps this is a song that your kids sing, or maybe you sang growing up, going to Sunday school, VBS, Awana, and so on. I think it's a song we're all familiar with. Of course, as parents, when you walk into Sunday school or junior church and hear the kids singing this song, it sounds cute. But have you ever stopped to listen, really listen to the words and to what this children's song is saying? In this little song, there is a profound theological truth. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Have you ever wondered how in the world this could be? Do you understand what you are saying? How can we, Gentiles, be sons, children of Abraham, recipients of all the blessings God promised to him. Well, that is the question that we will be answering this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 12. I want to begin by first painting the background to Genesis 12 by backing up and looking at the end of Genesis 11. If you remember in our sermon from last week, we ended the tragic story of the rebellion at Babel with a a small ray and yet an important ray of hope. That ray of hope was found in the lineage of who? Shem. If you think back to Genesis 9, you will remember that it was the line of Shem that Noah blessed, while it was the line and lineage of Canaan that he cursed. As we approach the call of Abram in Genesis 12, we are first introduced to 
this man's heritage. And sure enough, what we discover is that Abram is one of Shem's descendants. He's one of his descendants. In Genesis 11, 27, we see that Terah was Abram's father. And Abram had two other brothers, Hor and Haran. Haran being the father of Lot. And Lot will be important as we follow this story through the book of Genesis. He will be important to keep in mind because he will go with Abram to the land of Canaan, at least to a point. But look with me at Genesis 11, verses 28 through 32. I want to bring to your attention some small, what may seem like small, but very important details. Look at the text with me. To begin with, one of the first things that we notice is that we read that they all dwelt in Ur of the, of the Chaldeans, or what m- might be called Mesopotamia. Why is this significant? Why are these details significant? Because it shows that Abram came out of a pagan background. Have you ever noticed this in the text? Joshua 24.2 says that prior to God calling Abram, his family worshipped other gods. Gods of Mesopotamia. And so what I want you to see is that this call of Abram that we are going to focus on this morning, it really is a call. One that has saving implications. But also notice Haran, the father of Lot, how he dies while they're in this land, leaving Lot fatherless. Not to mention Abram, who takes a wife, not just Abram, but Nahor. They take wives, Nahor marrying Milcah, which is important to know because if you follow the story, it's her granddaughter, Rebekah, who eventually will marry Isaac in Genesis 24. But notice who Abram marries, Sarai, whose name will later be changed to Sarah. And we're told one very important fact that's going to follow us again and again in the text. She was barren. She had no children, and it didn't look like she was going to have any. As we'll see soon enough, it is through this hopeless, what seems hopeless, barren situation that God promises that seed a blessing to all the nations will come. Isn't it fascinating how God so often works in this way with these women? At the end of Genesis 11, we also learn in verses 31 through 32 that this family is one that's on the move. Terah takes Abram, Sarai, and Lot from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan. But they stop and they settle in the land of Haran. At the end of Genesis 11, we're left on this somewhat sad note with the death 
of Terah, which means that Abram and Sarai and Lot are left in grief still in this land. And there's no indication that they are going to keep traveling to the land of Canaan. That is, until God intervenes in Abram's life and he changes everything. So the first thing I want you to see in Genesis chapter 12 is the call of Abram and God's global blessings that result from this. Look at verse 1 with me. In Genesis 12, 1, we read something absolutely remarkable. As with Adam and Noah, God now speaks again, and this time to Abram. And not only does he reveal himself to Abram, but he gives him a very specific command. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now you must understand what a weighty command and call this was. God was telling Abram to give up everything, his country, his extended family, and all of the security that would have come with these things. And to go to a land that was unknown and foreign, a land Abram had not really seen or experienced. Of course, as we'll soon see, God's purpose in taking Abram to this new land is to give this land to Abram and the great nation that will come from his offspring. But God did not merely give him a command. His command was followed with a promise as well. And not just any promise, but a promise of blessing. Look at verses 2 through 3. God says to Abram, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and who, him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are several aspects of this blessing that we cannot miss. Notice God's promises to make a great nation out of Abram. Which implies that that Abram will have many descendants. After all, you can't have a nation without descendants. In view of his wife being barren, this promise must have been absolutely shocking to Abram. Furthermore, in making a great nation out of Abram, God would also make Abram's name great as well. Well, the men at Babel sought to make a great name for themselves in their outrageous arrogance. God comes, scatters them, dissolves their conceit, 
And instead, he goes to one man. God elects Abram in order to make his name great. Do you see the reversal that's happening? At Babel, it's man who will make his name great. And here, it's God. God has the prerogative to make Abram's name great. What is the purpose? What is the purpose of making Abram a great nation and a great name? It's so that he will be a blessing. We'll see in a minute just how Abram might be a blessing and what that will mean. But in the meantime, I want you to pay attention to verse 3. God also promises to bless all those who bless Abram and to curse all those who curse him. In other words, God is on Abram's side. So much so that those who turn against him will find themselves under God's wrath. While those who are good to him will find themselves recipients of God's favor. Certainly this promise of divine protection is meant to guarantee and protect the seed that will come from Abram and Sarai. If a great nation will be the fruit of their offspring, if this is going to happen, that means that God must protect their offspring so that this nation's future is not placed under jeopardy. As the story plays out in Genesis 11 and following, we will see time and time again that God does just that. He protects Abram and Sarai so that Sarai will give birth to a son from whom this great nation will Descend. And what you're going to see in the weeks to come as we look at this story is that this promise is made, and yet, chapter after chapter, there are threats. Threats to wipe out this descendant and consequently this promise. At the end of verse 3, we see that. We really see what God means when he says back in verse 2 that his purpose is for Abram to be a blessing. So often when we approach the Bible, we can be tempted to just take texts like this and rip them out of context and make them mean whatever we want them to mean. These words like blessing, we can manipulate. But here we have to pay attention This is not just some wishful thinking. This is not some word that you just see on some Hallmark greeting card. Now, this is a very specific blessing. It's a blessing that takes place in the context of this redemptive story. You might be asking yourself, a blessing to whom? 
a blessing to the nations of the whole earth. Look at verse 3. What does God say there? And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram was going to be the instrument through which God will dispense blessing to all nations. In this light, Abraham really is a type of a new Adam. In some ways, even a, a last Adam. While destruction came at Babel, now God is starting over. He is starting afresh in order to bless the whole earth through Abram will be the multiplication of a new humanity, which brings us to our next point. In Genesis 12, verses 4 through 9, we see Abraham's response of obedience as well as the land of promise. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we must see that Abraham's belief is evidenced, how? In his obedience. His obedience to God's command. As fearful as a command it is, Abram listens and he obeys. Isn't that always how faith works itself out in obedience? Verse 4 says, So so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham, keep in mind, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, taking his wife as well as Lot and all that he owned. Leaving this place, he then set his sight on Canaan. I think his obedience here, which stems from his faith, is praiseworthy. Certainly, he counted the cost. God was commanding him to leave all that he knew in order to follow him. Isn't this just what Jesus required of his followers in Matthew 10.37? A command that surely must have startled, shocked, disturbed so many of them. Jesus said there that they would have to give up anything, even the most precious things, that might come in the way. That might be a God in the way of Christ. There, Jesus commanded his followers that they would even have to give up father or mother. Father or mother in order to be worthy of him. That is how precious and worthy Christ is. And that is how much it costs. In the end, Abram's allegiance to the God who now called him was higher than his allegiance to family and to country. 
given God's promise, perhaps you expected Abraham to get to the land and to take it as his own. After all, God has called him to this land for his descendants. But there's a problem, isn't there? What happens when he gets there? Upon arriving, Abram saw that the Canaanites were occupying the land. Can you, can you feel the tension in the text? There's tension here. In Genesis 9, remember, it is Canaan and his descendants who are cursed by Noah. It is Canaan who is to serve and to be subject to Shem. So when Noah arrives, everything seems to be backwards. Perhaps at that moment, Abram would have been tempted to despair, to distrust God. God has called him to give up everything in order to come to this land. And here it's occupied by the very people that Noah cursed because of their disobedience. But God appears to Abram again and he reiterates his promise now that Abram's faith meets sight. Look at verse 7. God says to him, to your offspring, Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. Look at it. I will give you this land. Again, notice that Abram's response is one of trust and obedience. We know this because his, re- his reaction is to build an altar. An altar that's dedicated to the Lord. What, what is the meaning of this? Because as we progress through Genesis, what you're going to find is that time and time again, these altars are being erected to the Lord. Many times by Abram. What does this mean when Abram builds an altar? You'll notice that as the story continues, this isn't the last time. And Look at verse 8, for example. Abram moves to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitches his tent there, and he decides to build an altar. Why? Well, the text tells us. He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Certainly worship is involved here. Abram expressing his trust and reliance upon God. But there's more going on. This says something about the land that God has promised. I love what, how John Calvin explains Abram's actions here. He says, Abram endeavored as much as in him lay to dedicate to God every part of the land to which he had access and perfumed it with the odor of his faith. Doesn't that sum it up? 
every part of the land, perfuming it with the odor of his faith. In other words, this is a visible picture, a very physical and real manifestation that Abram trusted, obeyed, and believed that the promises God made, though these Canaanites occupied the land, the promises that God made would come about. It's Abram's faith in this passage that the book of Hebrews speaks of so well. Listen, you don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen to Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promises. Why? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. People, that is Hebrews 11 interpreting for you what is happening in Genesis 12. Abraham, as an heir of this great promise, believed. And though his sight couldn't see it. His eyes could not picture it yet. The promise was made. And his eyes of faith looked forward to a city that wasn't built by men like Babel, but instead its designer, its architect, its builder is God Himself. Isn't that where faith is rooted? It's not some generic faith. Just have faith. In what? In what? In God. You see, your faith means nothing. Nothing at all unless it is grounded in God Himself. In His promises, as we will see in a minute, in His gospel promises. People, that is where your faith has to be rooted. It's not faith in just anything. It's faith in the very promises of God. And those promises which undergird your faith, they hold you up when you 
you cannot see. It does not look like it's going to happen. It does not look like what it's supposed to be yet. What do you... Where is your faith? It is grounded in God. Not necessarily in what you can see or touch or in who you are or what you can do. God's call of Abram to a new land to create a new people is ultimately one that's going to result in a new kingdom. A kingdom that God will establish. I found it so fascinating in studying for this passage how some authors even think that in what comes next in the life of Abram, he even takes on responsibilities of of a king or a priest. Unlike Babel, this kingdom will not be man's making. Instead, it will be a kingdom founded by God Himself. One in which He will establish His king. Abram, in other words, is being called to the city of God. Where He will receive an inheritance. But, He must go to this city by faith in the promises of God. By faith in the promises of God. Which brings us to our last point. The global and Abrahamic blessings ultimately come through Christ. The temptation with a passage like this and the call of Abram is to keep it narrow as if it is only or merely about Abram and his immediate descendants and nothing else. Certainly, it is true that these blessings promised to Abram and his descendants begin to blossom after the death of Jacob and then Joseph as God's people begin to grow in number beyond count, becoming a nation until they are set apart as God's chosen people and sent on a mission to enter into the very land that God promised. God's call and Abram's faith would would be a tremendous story For Israel to read, I mean, imagine yourself at that time receiving this story about Abram and God's call. It would have showed them that their calling from God as a nation, as a people, as a called out people from Egypt, this calling from God to enter into this land and possess it was actually from God. They weren't there, but here are the promises that were given to their fathers. And yet, it demanded their faith and obedience, something they struggled so often 
to do. But people, if we stop there and just close our Bibles, we do a terrible disservice to the Word of God and to what it means to be Christian. If we, if we read our entire Bible, we know that God's promise to bless the nations through Abram's offspring, it's not limited to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but is ultimately fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. In other words, and listen, listen to me. The promises to Abraham find their fullest meaning in the incarnation of Christ and his gospel, which goes out to the nations. If, if our eyes are open, we see this fulfillment everywhere in the New Testament. The very first verse, the very first verse of, God, of, of Matthew's gospel says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and who's that? Son of David, the son of Abraham. Who is this son of Abraham? He is the one through whom the gospel of the kingdom comes and is then proclaimed to all the nations for the ultimate blessing, which is their redemption. Jesus himself says exactly this in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. He's saying this to his Jewish listeners. The ultimate blessing God had in mind in Genesis 12 was not merely physical offspring and physical land, though we don't want to ignore that or undermine it, but actual redemption, restoration, and reconciliation to God Himself on a global scale. Isn't this the good news that the apostles proclaimed in the book of Acts? As they went time and time again back to the Old Testament, quoting it and quoting it and quoting it in order to show their listeners what this gospel is all about. In fact, Peter reminds the Jews in his day, right after Pentecost, that this good news came to them first 
before it even went out to the Gentiles. Listen to Acts 3. As Peter interprets for these Jewish people what has happened in the cross and resurrection of Christ. This is what the cross and resurrection of Christ are about. Listen. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's referring here to them crucifying Jesus. As did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He's not finished. Moses Moses said, this is the New Testament. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother's You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, by by the way, prophets here is not just merely limited to those major and minor prophets at the end of your Old Testament. It encompasses so much more, including Moses. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days and listen to what Peter says next. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. Who's that? Same to Abraham. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. People... That is Acts chapter 3, quoting Genesis 12.3. We're not finished. Perhaps the New Testament passage that shows how Genesis 12 applies to those in the New Covenant so beautifully is Galatians 3. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen and just see how the dots are being connected here. The Apostle Paul quotes from Genesis 12.3 in Galatians 3 to remind the Galatians what? That it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham and not those who seek to be justified before God by their good works of the law. Listen to what Paul says. He writes, The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles 
by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Saying, here it is. You ready for the gospel? Here it is. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's point is that Abraham is the father not only of believing Jews, but of Gentiles as well. And that is you. Now how can this possibly be since there are not physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sitting in this room. And many of the listeners and readers of the New Testament. How is this possible? How can this be since they were not the ones who received the law of Moses? How can this be? It is because those who are true sons of Abraham are not those of biological descent, nor those who seek right standing by works of the law, as Paul says, but those who have faith, just as Abraham did. Was not Abraham himself just like you, a total pagan, worshiping false gods, when God called him out of darkness into his marvelous light? He was. And yet, by God's grace, He believed God. And all those who have faith, likewise, can be called His children. In doing so, God's promise to Abraham that in Him all the nations will be blessed is being fulfilled even now. Because God is justifying the Gentiles by faith. This is why Paul can say, this is, wrap your mind around this. Paul can say in Galatians 3 that the gospel was preached in Genesis 12, to Abraham. Is this not amazing? The gospel of Jesus Christ was preached in Genesis 12. 
Well, perhaps we could change the title of this morning's message to the gospel proclaimed to Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. So let's praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are so short-sighted. Too often we read our Bibles and we, we don't see that from Genesis to Revelation, you have a plan, a redemptive saving plan that you are unfolding. And whether it's Abraham looking out at the land of Canaan, Israel entering that land under Joshua, the prophets telling of a son of Abraham to come who will make all the nations a blessing under the lordship of Christ. Lord, may we too see these truths and may we too be called sons of Abraham. May we not miss the gospel, whether it's preached in Genesis 12, Galatians 3. May we not miss it. May we not orient our church around any other gospel but this. Lord, as a very small slice of those who represent the nations, as Fellowship Baptist Church, we come to you this morning as children of Abraham. Not because of anything we have done, but purely through faith in the Son of Abraham, Jesus Christ.